What comes to mind when you hear the term worldliness? Do you think of the conventional manifestations like smoking, drinking, clubbing, and immodest clothing? If so, you may be trivializing the concept. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. What the Apostle Paul means when he speaks of worldliness is not so much our actions, but our way of thinking. That is, our thinking should not conform to the world's humanistic mindset of relativism, materialism, hedonism, and the other isms of the times in which we live. Listen now as Dr. Boyce explores the mentality of this world and compares it to Paul's understanding and teaching of the transformed mind that Christ's followers are meant to possess. There are some verses in the Bible that are greatly enriched when we look at them in various translations, and Romans 12.2 is one of them, at least the first part of it is. In the New International Version, our version, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now that sentence has two key words in it. The first is the word world, I own, in Greek, and it actually means age. So it's speaking of this present age in contrast to the age to come. And the second key word in the verse is do not conform. That's a Greek word which has at its root the word scheme. So if you take those ideas and put them together, the verse is really saying something like this. Do not let the age in which you live force you into its scheme of thinking and behaving. Now that's what some of the translations try to bring out. Let me tell you What a few of them say, the New American Catholic Bible says, do not conform yourselves to this age. The Jerusalem Bible, another very good translation, says, do not model yourselves on the behavior of the world around you. Here's the Living Bible, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And perhaps best known of all is that paraphrase by J.B. Phillips. He said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Now, In each of these renderings, the chief idea is this. The world has its ways of thinking and doing things, and one of the things the world tries to do is get Christians to conform to it. And instead of being conformed to that pattern of thinking and that pattern of behavior, Christians are to be transformed from within to become increasingly like Jesus Christ. Now, that's what we need to explore. That first phrase of verse 2 is a warning against worldliness, of course, not to be like the world. But as soon as we say worldliness, we have to make very clear what we are talking about because often we have had a wrong idea of what worldliness really is. I grew up in an evangelical, rather fundamentalist church, and with that kind of a background, I was taught that worldliness was things like smoking, drinking, dancing, and playing cards. Christian girl would say, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with boys who do. If she was like that, well, then she was a Christian girl and she wasn't worldly. Now, that's not what's in view here. And if we think of worldliness in those terms, what we're going to do is trivialize it and we're going to overlook seeing how subtle and how very dangerous and harmful it really is. Now, the clue to what Paul is really thinking about here comes in the next phrase, because as soon as he gives the negative, don't be conformed, he gives the positive, and the positive is be transformed, he adds, by the renewing of your mind. 
Well, what he's thinking about here is thinking, a way of thinking. And when he says, don't be conformed to the world, what he has in mind, therefore, chiefly, is the way the world thinks about things. Now, there are technical terms for that. We speak of a worldview. That's the best way we can talk about it in English. The Germans have a very powerful word for it. It's often used in theology. It's called a Weltanschauung, a systematic outlook on all that there is to be known. Paul is saying, you see, the world has its worldview. We're not to be conformed to that worldview. We're to have a Christian worldview. In our day, I must say, I don't think Christians have done this very well, and this is the reason why they're so worldly in other ways also. If we are to pay attention to the surveys, which are done to see how the thinking of Christian people, alleged Christian people, differ from the views of their neighbors, we find that there's very little difference at all. For the most part, in America today, generally speaking, Christians share the same thought categories, the same values, and the same behavior patterns of the world around them. So that's what we want to work with. Now, if worldliness is not such things as drinking, dancing, and playing cards, what is it? If it's a way of thinking, what is this worldly worldview that we're to be separated from? Now, it's hard to find a simple way of talking about that. There's no one word that adequately describes it, but if there is one word that adequately describes the worldview that confronts us, particularly today, it's the word secularism. Secularism is an umbrella term that covers a number of other isms, some of which I want to speak about in a few moments, things like humanism, relativism, pragmatism, pluralism, hedonism, and materialism. They're all part of it, but it, more than any other single word, aptly describes the mental outlook or the moral framework of the world in which we live. Now, it is also the best word to tap into what Paul is actually saying in Romans 12 too, because you recall a moment ago that I said the word that is translated world in our text is actually the word age, and that's what secular really means. The word secular or secularism comes from the Latin word seculum, and it means the age. So secular is probably the best possible translation of what Paul is saying. I suppose you'd have to put it something like this. What he's really saying is, don't be secularist in your way of thinking. Now, there's a right way to be secular, of course. I've mentioned it before. We live in, in a secular world, and we have to function in a secular world, and there is, in a certain sense, secular things we have to do. Paying taxes is one of them. Now, it's true you can do secular things in a spiritual way, and I don't deny that, although I find it hard to know how to pay taxes in a spiritual way, but it must be possible. Now, there are legitimate secular activities that we have, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking not about secular, but about secularism, and that means it's a philosophy which says, in effect, this world that we see and touch and know and measure is all there is, and it's all we need to reckon with. Now, I want to give some examples of this, and the first example, the best one I know, is something Carl Sagan said at the very beginning of that popular television series, Cosmos. If you saw that, you know that at the very beginning, Carl Sagan is portrayed there against a magnificent background of the starry heavens at night with all of the swirling galaxies. And he says as he starts, it's the thesis for the entire show in holy, almost reverential tones, the cosmos is all that is or 
ever was or ever will be. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That is secularism in your face. That's as secular as you can possibly be. That is saying that there is nothing but those things out there we see and measure and touch. There's nothing beyond that. There's nothing spiritual. There's certainly no room for God. If you take that down and transform it in terms of our existence here on the earth, it means that we must operate within the limits of our life on earth and earth alone. If you think of it in terms of time, it means we have to eliminate the eternal and think only of the now. Now, I said I wanted to give a couple examples. That's one from television. How about the slogans that are used in advertising? Here's one of them. You only go around once. That's secularism. There's no hereafter to go around in. It's just now. Or how about the old slogan for the Pepsi commercial, the now generation. Now it's gotten even worse, you know, now it's the uh-huh generation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that next week because uh-huh is mindless, and I want to say that that is uh, the greater danger. We're going to explore that at great length in our next study, but at least the now generation, well, that is secularism. Now those slogans are pervasive. They dominate our culture, and they are terribly dangerous, terribly harmful for this reason. You don't have to worry about tomorrow if all that really matters is the now. Why, for example, should we be concerned about the national debt? Well, there's trillions of dollars of debt we've piled up in this country. Why? Well, don't have to worry about it. I only have to worry now. As long as I have enough money now, let my children worry about it. That's not my concern. I want to take it down to the level of the children, the students. Why should I worry about studying in order to prepare myself to do some useful work hereafter as long as I can have a good time now. Or let's put it in spiritual terms. Why should I worry about God or righteousness or sin or judgment or salvation if now is all that really matters? Here's the way R.C. Sproul puts it. For secularism, all life, every human value, every human activity must be understood in light of this present time. What matters is now, and only now. All access to the above and the beyond is blocked. There's no exit from the confines of this present world. The secular is all that we have. We must make our decisions, live our lives, make our plans, all within the closed arena of this time, the here and the now. Now, we should understand that. We should have any difficulty understanding what that is saying because that is what we are confronted with all the time. Not only do we hear it all the time, we're confronted with it in every place and in every circumstance, and yet, you see, according to Romans 12, 2, that is the very thing to which we are not to be conformed. Well, we are to be as transformed, to begin to think in terms of God and eternity and spiritual things and values, and I'm afraid to say that often we are not. Here's the way Harry Blameyers, the Englishman who writes some very brilliant books, puts the contrast. To think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It's to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. Now that's secularism. I also want to talk about another ism. And the second ism is humanism. Now, a moment ago, when I talked about secularism, I said 
there's a right way to be concerned with the secular because we live in a secular world. When we talk about humanism, we have to say the same thing. There's a right way to be a humanist, although it would be far better to use the word humanitarian. You see, people who are concerned with other people are humanitarians, and Christians had better be humanitarians. Christians are not concerned about other people. It's very questionable whether they're Christians, because Jesus was obviously concerned about other people. So we have to be humanitarians. It's humanism that's the problem. What's the problem with humanism? Well, it's the philosophy which says that when we look at other people, particularly ourselves, we do so without any relationship to God. We don't have to bring God in to define who we are, where we're going, or what we ought to be. And when we look at mankind that way, well, then we are no longer looking at ourselves rightly, but rather wrongly, and this also is very harmful. Usually today, when Christians talk about humanism, they couple the first word to the second in order to make clear the kind of humanism we mean. If there's a right humanism, it's obviously a wrong humanism that we're concerned about, and so we talk about secular humanism. That's a good term. It means a concern for man without any relationship to God. Now, I want to give an example of that, and I also want to show why it's harmful. The best example I know is in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. It has to do with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of Babylon, and Babylon was the greatest, most glorious city of the day. One day he was on the roof of his palace, and he looked out, I presume, across the famous hanging gardens of Babylon to the magnificent and prosperous city that lay beyond, and he said this, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That was a statement that everything he saw was of him, by him, and for his glory, and that is humanism. That's exactly what secular humanism says. Of course, that's what God would not tolerate. God inflicted Nebuchadnezzar with insanity, which is a way of saying anybody who thinks along those lines is out of his or her mind. You're crazy if you think that everything out there exists for you. But nevertheless, that's what humanism does. Nebuchadnezzar, in his insanity, was driven out to live with the animals, and he began to behave like an animal. And he did that for seven years until, spiritually speaking, as well as mentally, his sanity was restored. And here's the way he describes it. He describes it as saying, when I began to get my eyes off myself and began to realize that it wasn't I who have done all of this and instead raised my eyes to heaven and thought of God, that's when my sanity came back. And he said it this way, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. That is the order. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, and he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And so he does. Now let me say that humanism, as a philosophy, is opposed to God and is hostile to Christianity. This is very evident in the formal statements of humanism. There's a humanistic society, as I'm sure you know, And over the years, they've published a number of credos or manifestos. There's the Humanist Manifesto of 1933, the Humanist Manifesto II of 1973, and more recently, the Secularist Humanist Declaration of 1980. Now, the first of these, the document of 1933, says this, Traditional theism, especially faith in the prayer-hearing God, assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and 
understand their prayers and be able to do something about them is an unproved and outmoded faith. Salvationism, based on mere affirmation, still appears as harmful, diverting people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. The Human Manifesto II of 1973 said this, We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It also said there's no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. Now, I ask at that question, where does a humanism like this lead? And the answer is this. It leads, first of all, to a deification of the self, that is, it makes me God, And secondly, it leads to a disregard of other people, in spite of the claims of the humanists who would say exactly the opposite. Now, let me illustrate each of those. As far as deifying self is concerned, what humanism actually deifies is everything but God. You see, we can't live without God. There's a vacuum there, and so if the real God is out or denied, something has to come in, and one of the dangers is that everything comes in. It's a magnificent book that I recommend to you if you want to take time to read it by a man named Herbert Schlossberg. He's one of the project directors of the Fieldstead Institute, and his book is called Idols of Destruction. Idols for Destruction describes the idols of our day, and here they are. He gives a chapter to each. Humanism has made a god of history, mammon, nature, power, religion, and, of course, humanity itself. It's a brilliant book. It's well worth studying. As far as the second thing is concerned, disregarding other people, the very thing the humanists would challenge, I say, well, look at the kind of culture we produced. Go back to the 70s. What were the best-selling books in the 70s? There were books like these, Winning Through Intimidation and Looking Out for Number One. What do the books say? What those books say is this, forget about other people, look out for yourself, you are what matters. And so what emerged in that decade is what Thomas Wolf, a social critic, described as the me decade. That is, I have become the center of the universe. And quite naturally as well, the 70s gave way to the 80s, which other social critics have called the golden age of greed. Now remember also that this is the philosophy, and some would even say the religion of the public schools. A great irony that this should be the philosophy of the public schools because the schools are supposed to deal with reason and humanism is an irrational philosophy. You say, well, how, how so? How can it be irrational? You have a lot of brilliant people who are humanists. The reason it's irrational is this. It tries to establish humanistic or other values or goals without a transcendent point of reference. And you can't do that. It's precisely the transcendent point of reference that you need to establish goals that's been rejected by the humanists. Now, you, you see that on the common level, rationality of humanism is what is happening in the public schools. Here you're supposed to have a place where reason prevails, and what you have instead is chaos. Students today are using guns to kill other students and threaten teachers. Well, for humanism as well as for secularism, The word of the Bible for Christian people is this, do not be conformed. And remember that the first expression of humanism was not the humanist manifesto of 1933 or even the words of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon about 600 years before Jesus Christ, but rather it goes the whole way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan told Eve, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's humanism at its core.
Now, while we're talking about humanism, we also have to talk about relativism, at least briefly, because if man is the focal point of everything, then there are no absolutes and everything is up for grabs. You remember that book written some years ago by Professor Alan Bloom at the University of Chicago? It's called The Closing of the American Mind. In that book at the very beginning, Bloom says this, there's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Now, what that book sets out to prove is that education, real education, is impossible in that kind of a climate. It's not that you can't learn things in a certain sense. You can learn skills. You can teach people how to drive a truck, work a computer, handle complicated financial transactions and such things without really educating them. All you're really doing is giving them skills. But if you talk about real education, real education, you see, is sifting through error to discover what is true and good and beautiful. If you're talking about that, well, it's impossible in a relativistic system because there is nothing that is absolutely true or absolutely good. If it doesn't exist, there's no point in trying to seek it out. That's what bothers Bloom because he remembers going back to the Greeks, and he's a Platonist himself and is thinking that that's what the Greeks tried to do. They didn't know how to find the true and the good and the beautiful, but they believed in it and they were trying to find it, and so they developed Greek philosophy and Greek thought. We're the beneficiaries of that in the Western world, but all of that is going by the boards today. And you see, even if, even if goodness and truth and beauty existed somehow, somewhere in a metaphysical never-never land, it would still be impossible to seek it out in a relativistic universe because in order to discover absolutes, you have to have absolutes. At the very least, you have to have the absolutes of logic, truth and falsehood and such things as that. All of that's impossible. Now, is it any wonder that with such an underlying destructive philosophy, American culture should experience what Time magazine called some years ago a moral morass and a values vacuum. One more ism, materialism, one more thing to which we're not to be conformed. This takes us back to secularism because it's a part of it. You see, if the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, then nothing exists but what is material or measurable. And if there's any value to be found in life, it has to be found in materialistic terms. Let me put it in the common terms of the day. Be as healthy as you can. Live as long as you can. Get as rich as you can. That's materialism. Now, who are the heroes of our day? When today's young people are asked who their heroes or their heroines are, it comes out very quickly that they really have no heroes at all. Unless, perhaps, people who are rich and famous, like Madonna, and speaking of Madonna, isn't it interesting that she's referred to most often not as a singer or an entertainer or even a sex symbol, but as what? The Material Girl. It's the title of one of her songs, one of her early albums, The Material Girl. That is, she represents the material things of the world. I don't think of anything spiritual when you think about Madonna. It represents the material things of the world, things like clothes or the lack of them, money, fame, and above all, pleasure, and this is what today's young people want to be like. Isn't that true? They want to be rich and famous and have things, and they want to be able to enjoy them. Those are their goals. T.S. Eliot wrote about it years ago. He died years ago, as you know, great poet. He wrote an epitaph for our materialistic generation, and it goes like this. Here were a decent 
godless people. Their only monument, the asphalt road and a thousand lost golf balls. Now think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born into a poor family, and he was laid in a manger instead of a cradle and a borrowed one at that. He never had a home or a bank account or a family of his own. He said of himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When he was on trial before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight, but rather my kingdom is from another place. And when he was crucified and died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. If there was ever an individual in all the history of the world who operated on the basis of values above and beyond the world in which we lived, it was Jesus Christ. He was the polar opposite of the material girl. And yet no one in all the history of the world has influenced the world for good as much as Jesus Christ. Now you see, it's into his image that we as Christians are to be transformed. Now we're going to look at a little bit more of the problem and then the solution as we go on. We're going to talk about mindlessness next time and then the solution that's proposed for that, all of it here in the second verse of the 12th chapter of Romans. But before we do that, I want to end just by jumping ahead to that word transformed. See, there's a great contrast there, and you can hardly miss it. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, conformity is something outward. It happens externally to us. We're forced into this external mold. Transformation is something that happens internally to us as the life of Jesus Christ actually changes what we are. You understand that immediately when I point out that in the Greek, the word that's translated transformed is metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's what happens to the caterpillar when it turns into the butterfly. And there's this interesting fact too. This Greek word is found four times in the New Testament. It's found here once. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18 to describe our being transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. And then here's the interesting thing. It's found twice in the Gospels of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain where he had gone with Peter, James, and John. Those verses say there he was transfigured before them. Matthew 17.2 and Mark 9.2. Now, it's the same word. In other words, the same word that is used by Paul to describe our transformation by the renewing of our minds so that we will not be conformed to this world is used by the gospel writers to describe the transfiguration of Jesus from the form of his earthly humiliation to the radiance that Peter, James, and John were privileged to see on the mountain for a time. That, of course, is why Paul, undoubtedly thinking about the transfiguration, says in 2 Corinthians, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that is happening. It's happening to Christians, because if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to make you like Jesus Christ. It's happening. But in Romans, in Romans 12, too, he says, make sure it happens. Let it happen. 
In other words, in Romans, he emphasizes our responsibility. Not that we can do it for ourselves. That's the work of God within us. It's supernatural, but we have a responsibility. And if you say, what is the responsibility? It's that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do you get your mind renewed? You get it by studying the Word of God. That's the only place you're ever going to have a renewed mind. You're not going to get it from television. It's by the Word of God. Without that study, we're going to remain in the world's mold, as so many Christians are, unable to think and therefore also unable to act as Christians. With that study, blessed and empowered as it will be by the Holy Spirit, God says that he will bless the study of his word. We'll begin to take on something of the luster of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will become increasingly like him. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are far too much like the world around us, that the world's thought patterns, the world's values, the world's activities, the world's desires, they are far too much the way we think and the way we operate, in spite of the fact that by your grace we've come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. We confess the reason is we know so little of your word, and even when we know it, we act upon it so little. Forgive us for that, and renew within us a desire not to be like the world we see, however glamorous it may present itself to our thinking, but rather to be like Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal, and whose glory surpasses anything we can possibly see or know here and now. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts, and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically. Biblically.